It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. When I took a couple days off for the Christmas break, and I hope you had a great holiday, COVID was pretty bad. And now that I'm back, COVID is really horrible. And we will get into all that. There's also been a number of media stories and plain old media gossip that have broken uh, in the last few days. I've been kind of saving up these nuggets, you know, like the ornaments on the tree, uh, and then and unwrap them and take out the gifts for you today on the podcast. Uh, but first, I want to touch on the uh, couple of obituaries from the last 24 or so hours. One, of course, John Madden, the almost legendary NFL coach, guy who won a Super Bowl with the Oakland Raiders. Uh, I read somewhere that for coaches who um, handled more than 100 NFL games, he had the winningest record or highest winning percentage of any of them, which is pretty remarkable. But I think the reason we remember him and the reason a lot of people are touched by his passing at 85 uh, is simply his career after football as an NFL broadcaster. He just had this incredible kind of wacky personality when the X's and O's and, of course, the John Madden football game. So um, a lot of people taking note of John Madden's passing. And in a very different arena, although he was once uh, an amateur boxer, is Harry Reid, a longtime Senate majority leader, uh, also passing away. And, you know, Reid is one of these guys who was a fiercely partisan figure. So a lot of Republicans could not stand him. He wasn't beloved by the Democrats. He had a very taciturn personality, but he certainly was respected and admired for what he was able to accomplish. For example, he probably is the person after Barack Obama had the most to do with passing Obamacare, but he also did uh, some awful things. To me, the thing that always stood out was during the 2012 campaign, um, Harry Reid just declared on the basis of no evidence because he was making it up that Mitt Romney had paid no income taxes. And Romney said that wasn't true, but Reid kept hammering away. And later, it came out after the election that Romney, in fact, had paid the income taxes. Uh, And Reid's response, rather than uh, any kind of remorse or semi-apology, was, well, he didn't win, did he? That shows you something about uh, the way Reid handled his office. But the one memory that I have of Harry Reid I had been invited to a Senate lunch with him with a bunch of reporters. You know, he's sitting around a big table. And we're talking about all the controversies of the day. And at one point, he talked about himself uh, in kind of this monotone. And he said, you know, this is the only thing I do. I have no hobbies. I don't play golf. I just do politics. I do this all the time. My entire life is wrapped up with this job, and I enjoy it. I enjoy it because I don't do anything else. He didn't talk about his family or his kids. Um, And I thought, on the one hand, well, here's a pretty dedicated guy. On the other hand, it was kind of sad that he had no other life than the United States Senate. Uh, Harry Reid also uh, passing away. All right. Let's turn to uh, the record-breaking numbers. You know, I've prepared you for this because every time I came on the podcast, I said, well, it's up another 20,000. Well, you know, it had been 160. Now it's over 200. So now we have broken the all-time record, the highest number of average daily cases for the coronavirus. Since it began, even going back to last year when there were no vaccines, 267,000 new average daily cases. That's a 126% increase just in the last two weeks. The previous record was like 248,000. So it's kind of a stunning number if you stop and think about it, because it means if it continues at this pace, and the big question mark is how long it will continue at this blistering pace, means every four days 
there'll be more than a million people getting COVID-19 in the United States of America. Now, I have to hasten to add that the number of cases now, um, despite breaking the record, it's a very different situation than in 2020 when we had no vaccines. And if you got COVID, it could be a death sentence or it could be um, a pretty high likelihood that you might have to go to the hospital. Omicron in particular seems, as the evidence accumulates, to be much milder. That's the good news, but it's not any fun to get. But it also seems resistant, at the very least, to the vaccines that have been developed. So some voices are now saying, well, we, you know, we should move away from looking at case numbers because since, it, you know, we have pills coming out uh, to treat COVID-19 and since a lot of people have taken advantage, roughly 60% of the country has taken advantage of, of being fully vaccinated and some further percentage uh, or some subgroup of that being boosted uh, by these vaccines, it's just not the same as when we used to talk about these numbers. And there's some truth in that. But it also shows you that we've not beaten this virus. Now, one of the things that happened while I was off is that the CDC decided, seemingly arbitrarily, that uh, if you get COVID, you don't have to isolate anymore for 10 days. You can just isolate for five days. Which my first reaction to that was, what the hell is this based on? My second reaction was, so that whole... 10-day thing which so many millions of people went through trying to protect themselves and their families and their co-workers and not go back to work. Maybe the CDC was wrong then. Maybe 10 days was really overly cautious. Now, today, the Washington Post says that the reason for this switch, it was driven largely by the concern that essential services might be hobbled during this Omicron surge. In other words, so many people getting this, and if they've all got to stay home for 10 days, well, you're already seeing the impact uh, with all of the uh, thousands of air, airline cancellations. And now, according to the Post, uh, officials are worried that tens of thousands of police, firefighters, grocery workers, and other essential employees would be out of work, making it a challenge to keep society functioning. In other words, you don't need a lockdown if all these people can't show up from work. Now, Rochelle Walensky, who I don't think is a particularly good communicator at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, on today's show this morning saying, well, you know, five days, by the end of five days, the transmissibility of the virus, the odds that you could give it to someone else, you've, you've used up 85 to 90 percent. So that means there's a 10 to 15 percent chance you could still be contagious. So we'll just ignore that and say people you know, can go back to work. It's pretty clear that political pressure played a role here, as is, and understandably, the fear of, you know, further shutting down large portions of the economy, which is not without its own set of costs. Uh, also, further undermining confidence in the CDC, the CDC had come out uh, late December, it was actually last week, but it was looking back to the middle of December, and said, wow, Omicron, out of control, 73% of the variants in the U.S., Omicron. And then the other day, it's like, well, that was wrong. It was actually only 59%. That's a pretty big arithmetic difference. And it, it just shows you, maybe it shows you how hard it is to track and identify who's got what variant. 
But it just shows you, I mean, CDC, going back to the mask mandate controversies, when you had to wear them outside, is just constantly, constantly changing what it is telling the public, what it is telling the White House, what it is telling governors and mayors, and at the same time, not explaining it very well or having lousy explanations. And I think this is really taking a toll where a lot of people just ignore the CDC. Well, who cares what they say? Maybe tomorrow they'll be saying something different. Meanwhile, uh, on Monday, President Biden had a call with the governors, and he said there is no federal solution. This has to be dealt with at a state level. And to some extent, that's true. It's the governors and the mayors and the county executives who are on the front lines. Um, since the president can't tell them what to do, but it's kind of a, um, a head-slapping admission by Joe Biden because he spent much of 2020 blasting President Trump for not dealing with this at the federal level. And there's a lot of complexities to this. I obviously, I can't go into all of them. Uh, I remember Trump one time said, well, I'm, you know, I'm the leader of the country and I'm going to tell the governors what to do. And there was an uproar. And then a couple of days later, he came out and said, well, of course, the governors are going to take the lead. And it's just a recognition of reality, even though in the media we, we portray, you know, whoever is president as being, you know, the, the, the wisest, most powerful soothsayer, expert policymaker in the land. You know, we live in a federal system. And we can t- you can tell from the way that, for example, Texas and Florida have handled vaccine mandates and mask mandates that not all states think alike when it comes to this. So here's Jerome Adams. He had been the Surgeon General under Trump, uh, saying that he disagrees with the CDC on these isolation periods. Uh, and others have come out and said, you know, how can Biden, who ran on, on conquering the pandemic, now just say it's up to the governors. Um, also, according to another Washington Post piece, healthy individuals have been vaccinated, and especially those who have been boosted, appear unlikely to develop severe infections from Omicron that would land them in the hospital. We kind of known that. It's been accumulating from the evidence. It's good to know that because it doesn't completely undercut the case for vaccines. I mean, Nobody ever swore on a stack of Bibles that if you got the shots, you would never get COVID. What people were told was it is extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely if you get the shots. And now, of course, this is scrambled a little bit by Omicron. Uh, You will not have to go to the hospital. You will not face the possibility of dying. You will just have, you know, a rough few days. And that in and of itself, I think, is reason for the people who haven't gotten vaccinated to do so. Uh, but many of them are um, still holding out. And it's just, there's all these mixed messages, uh, all of them amplified by the media. It is just such a muddle. And by the way, when Biden says there's no federal solution, he is doing things at the federal level. He did order the 500 million rapid tests. But by the way, those won't be available until next month, I could say next year. And this was a colossal miscalculation. And he said the other day, yes, I wish that I, then he changed it to we, the royal we, you know, had gotten, had ordered more tests sooner. Well, of course, you don't wait until your house is on fire uh, to call in the fire department. Uh, Then there's the Anthony Fauci business. Um, So Fauci had an interview with ABC's Jonathan Carl, and he got the question, you know, should there be a vaccine requirement to get on airplanes to avoid furthering the spread? And, you know, 
I blame the media for this, but Fauci should know better by now that whenever he says, well, we're not going to, it's not off the table or we can't slam the door in it, that the media are going to run with headlines that says, Fauci says this could happen. Fauci says Christmas could be canceled and so on. So what, what Fauci told uh, ABC is a vaccine requirement for a person getting on the plane. It's just another level of getting people to have a mechanism that would spur them to get vaccinated. Namely, you can't get on a plane unless you're vaccinated. Uh, but he didn't say that he supported that. Then the next day, he went on CNN Situation Room uh, and he told Jim Acosta, uh, no, Jim, what I said was everything that comes up as a possibility, we put it on the table and we consider it. That does not mean it is going to be likely to happen. Right now, I don't think people should expect that we're going to have a requirement in domestic flights for people to be vaccinated. I gave an honest answer. It's on the table and we consider it, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's not the way the media worked. The media like, Biden administration doesn't rule out, you know, you can't get on a plane. I doubt it will happen. Uh, Fauci says he doubts it'll happen. But on the other hand, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the number of cases. This is a related story. It's a sports story, but it certainly deals with COVID. Antonio Brown is a guy who's a wide receiver for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And this past weekend, he came back to play. He had missed two months uh, because of injury and a suspension. So then, you know, he meets with reporters after the game. And he was, that's very uh, brusque with reporters and kind of blaming them. A reporter asked about his three-game suspension. The three-game suspension was for the following. Antonio Brown used a fake vaccination card to avoid having to follow the NFL's COVID protocols. In other words, he lied and cheated. He did not want to get the vaccine, which is his choice, but if you do have that choice, you've got to follow certain rules in the NFL as in other sports leagues. He got suspended for three games for coming up with a fake card. So naturally, reporters asked him about it. Brown said, next question. Um, he said, I don't want to talk about that. You guys are all drama. It's about football. We're going to talk about Carolina, or I don't want to talk to you guys. And he went on. He said, it's a lot of drama you guys create. A lot of drama people create who want stuff from me. That's just a part of life, a part of being in the position. I can't control what people want from me, what people write about me. I can't control what people say about me. Excuse me, you're a professional football player. You were suspended by the league for lying. It goes beyond lying. It's like having a fake ID so you can drink when you're under 21. You lied and cheated, you got suspended, and of course reporters doing their job are going to ask you about it, and you have no business lashing out at them. You can say no comment, you can say I don't want to talk about it. You guys are creating all the drama. No, Antonio Brown, you created the drama by your terrible actions, setting a horrible example for kids who might have been looking up to you. So I just think that, you know, look, I blame the media for lots and lots of things, but there are times when the press is just doing its job. And it's such an easy out, whether you're a politician, sports person, movie star, you name it. Oh, the press is being mean to me. Oh, the press is picking on me. Oh, the press doesn't want to uh, talk about what I want to talk about. Yeah, um, maybe the reason you have a really fat salary is because NFL games are transmitted on this thing called television. And maybe because of that, you have a responsibility to take questions. 
Now, you could take the question and you could say, I didn't think it was a big deal and I think too much is being made. And you can say whatever you want, dude. But don't blame the press for your own terrible misconduct. Misconduct that led the league to uh, take you, to force you not to play for three games. And then you had the injury as well. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right. Here's an interesting media story. Fascinating in my view. It has to do with The View. Now, you'll recall all the drama. And, of course, I had Megan McCain on my show after she left The View following her very controversial four-year stint. She wrote an audiobook in which she talked about how awful, in particular, Whoopi Goldberg and especially Joy Behar were to her. But she was great for ratings because, you know, The View made a lot of news. The way in which Megan McCain was covered was often, you know, Megan McCain goes off. And sometimes it was, you know, Joy Behar goes off and Megan McCain and so on. So since then, that was back in July that she left the show. So The View has been trying to find one measly conservative female panelist to be McCain's successor. And here among the people who have tried out, you know, you get a week on or a couple of shows and they see how they like you. Former Congresswoman Mia Love, Condoleezza Rice, CNN's S.E. Cup. Uh, former State Department spokesperson and one-time Fox contributor Morgan Ortegas, former White House Communications Director Alyssa Farah, Gretchen Carlson, Carly Fiorina, Anna Navarro of CNN, Mary Catherine Hamm, spent years at Fox, now at CNN, and one-time Fox co-host Ebony Williams. None of them have gotten the job. And Politico came out with this piece saying that the main co-hosts of the show, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar, and Sonny Huston, are upping the pressure to pick a successor. They're voicing their displeasure at having to introduce new guest hosts weeks after week in a seemingly endless process that they find disruptive to the flow of the show. Now, a spokesperson for the show says, oh, you know, we have more people we're trying out, Lisa Ling, Barry Weiss. That'd be interesting. But according to sources close to the show, the hunt for McCain's replacement has been a struggle for executives who are looking for a conservative cast member who checks all the right boxes. By the way, um, among those who were going to try out was um, Lisa Booth. But then Lisa Booth was very public. She's written a column for Newsweek saying why I won't get vaccinated. And ABC has strict vaccination rules, so she wasn't able to try out. In any event, here's the problem, as uh, Politico's sources are describing it. The view won't take a Republican who is a denier of the 2020 election results, which tends to correlate with Republicans who are pro-Trump. The view um, doesn't want anybody who embraced or is downplaying the January 6th Capitol riot. The View doesn't want anybody who's flirting too heavily, according to Politico, with fringe conspiracy theories of the MAGA wing of the GOP. But at the same time, the host must have some credibility with mainstream Republicans, many of whom still support Donald Trump. And even beyond that, The View believes that an anti-Trump conservative can't be seen as too chummy with the other co-hosts because... The market research shows the audience wants to see the women spar. They want to see them fight. They want to see them uh, take wax at each other. 
So, as one former staffer said, they're looking for a unicorn. I don't think this person exists. You got you can't be pro-Trump or too pro-Trump. You can't uh, say the 2020 election was rigged. You can't be too nice to the other co-hosts, but you got to be popular with mainstream Republicans. But you can't be too popular with mainstream Republicans because a lot of them support Trump. So it's like they want to create this robot <laughs> that that somehow magically makes everybody happy. And of course, that is a unicorn. And by the way, a lot of women who might otherwise be thrilled to be on The View look at the experience not just of Meghan McCain, but of Nicole Wallace, who did it for, what, a year? Elizabeth Hasselbeck, who didn't have a happy party. Abby Huntsman, who didn't have a happy party. And, and some of them came out afterwards and said they'd been bullied by their co-hosts and by ABC executives. So who in the world is going to want that job? You're almost being set up for failure. So maybe it wasn't that Meghan McCain was so difficult to deal with. Maybe it's an impossible job for a female conservative, given that you get beat up on by all the other liberal co-hosts. You got to be able to fight back, but you can't be, you know, you can't be this and you can't be that and you can't be this other thing. I, ultimately, they have to find somebody, right? Uh, but if that person is too mild-mannered, it's not going to work. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. That's why I thought this was a really insightful piece. Okay, Joe Rogan, who makes a lot of news as the world's most popular podcaster, said the other day that if Michelle Obama decides to run for president in 2024, so assuming Biden doesn't run, she will win. Here's what Rogan said. Michelle Obama, and they're going to bring in Harris. Harris comes back as the vice president. Michelle Obama is the president. We get a double dose of diversity. Well, some people might not think that's such a great idea, politically speaking. Uh, Rogan says that the, uh, the ticket on the Republican side will be Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Trump and DeSantis together. They have to make a super team. That's the only way they win. Well, I think that would be formidable, except obviously with Trump at the top of the ticket, you do have some baggage there as he continues to argue rather than looking ahead that the election was stolen, the election was stolen, the election was stolen, and January 6th wasn't that bad. But then Rogan says this, I really believe if Michelle Obama runs, she wins. She's great. She's intelligent. She's articulate. She's the wife of the best president that we have had in our lifetime in terms of like a representative of intelligent, articulate people. You know, the thing about Rogan is you, he's surprising. Like, you never know what he's going to say. You th would think he'd be a much bigger Trump fan than wanting Michelle Obama to run. But the reason that this, other than being an interesting tidbit, deserves no attention whatsoever is Michelle Obama is not going to run for president. She has no desire to run for president. She's not going to pull a Hillary Clinton and run for some office. She's very happy to have her uh, husband out of politics after eight years in the White House. I, this is not to say that she couldn't do it. She does not want to do it. She didn't particularly enjoy politics. She made the most that she could of her role as first lady. She knows what it's like to be under constant attack. She knows what it's like to be um, part of the first black family in American history. And I think she feel, feels like they did it. They gave it the office. They donated really 10 years of their lives because two years is the campaign and then two terms as president. So Rogan may have this fantasy, but it ain't happening, in my humble opinion. All right, how about this? Uh, it just goes to show you anybody can say anything. There's a Republican congressional candidate in Nevada by the name of Noah Malgeri. 
And Noam Algieri is under fire for uh, saying in a Facebook live chat that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, who remember there was the huge controversy over the Bob Woodward book and he um, was privately telling people that Donald Trump was crazy and privately telling, assuring the Chinese that uh, there wouldn't be any sudden military action in the final weeks of the Trump presidency. So Malgeri says, you know what? I think General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be executed on CNN. And I love the way this is written up. Oh, it's controversial. Yeah, you think? We don't need a congressional committee to investigate the crimes of Mark Milley. All the evidence is out there, says Malgeri. We need to get back to our patriotic, liberty-loving roots. What did they used to do to traitors if they were convicted by court? Which, by the way, not only is he not convicted by court, he hasn't been charged with anything, and he's not going to be charged with anything. They would execute them. That's still the law in the U.S. of A. I, I, I think, you know, if he's guilty of it by a court-martial, they should hang him on CNN. I mean, they're not going to do it on CNN, but on C-SPAN or something. And there I just have to laugh, like, okay, CNN's not going to do it. But C-SPAN, they'll run anything, so they'll cover the hanging. Okay, uh, I, I shouldn't even have to tell you that this is an outrageous, outrageous statement designed to get attention, which it probably did. Uh, and that, you know, as more came out, it did seem that the Woodward Costa book kind of hyped Millie's role to this degree. It's not that anything they said wasn't true, but it made it sound like really Millie was going rogue. Well, he himself said he didn't go rogue, that on these calls, there, were even, there was even a representative of the Trump White House on some of these calls where they discussed these things, uh, including the, the conversations with his Chinese counterpart, where it was really just a way to say, look, there's a lot of volatility going on here in the United States, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be any sudden military action and China shouldn't get upset about that. In any event, you can say that was an awful thing to do. I was critical of it based on the Woodward account. But I don't think it's a crime, and it's certainly not treason. I know people have said that they throw it around, and this guy decides to go one step further. Uh, Alex Jones of InfoWars, uh, his wife, I ordinarily wouldn't get into this, but there was a police action. Police took his wife, Erica, into custody this past Friday night after she allegedly struck her husband over the head over 20 times. According to a Daily Beast report based on police documents, she was charged with misdemeanor assault. And resisting arrest. She's out on $6,000 bond. Jones told the AP, it's a private family matter that happened on Christmas Eve. I love my wife. I care about her. It appears to be some kind of medication imbalance. Uh, nevertheless, uh, he called 911. Jones told the emergency operator his wife had struck him over the head multiple times and was, quote, holding a polished club in her hand and attempting to hit him with it. Well, that can't be a pleasant experience for Alex Jones. I mean, I've taken on Alex Jones over Sandy Hook and a whole lot of crazy conspiracy theories, but you don't like to see this happen. Uh, not great for him. And then here is in my favorite story of the day. Dr. Oz, as you know, Mehmet Oz, running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. So, you know, stories are starting to come out about some of the, let's just say, medications he embraced that turned out not to be very effective. And look, you know, if you're a doctor, if your whole persona is be that Oprah made you famous. And by the way, Oprah put out a statement saying, uh, Mehmet Oz running for Senate. Well, he's entitled to do that and the people of Pennsylvania will have to make their decision. Clearly, you know, she was holding her nose and didn't even want to say that. But anyway, 
Olivia Newsy of New York Magazine doing this big profile of Dr. Oz. And he didn't want to talk to her, and that's fine. But she calls the house, and Dr. Oz's wife, Lisa Oz, answers the phone, hangs up. Olivia Newsy calls back. Lisa Oz says, how did you get my number? Uh, I told her, this is according to Newsy, the number was listed in public records, and that annoyed her. Oh, she said, I should have gotten rid of that. Uh, and she said, have a nice day, and hung up. But here's the problemo. She thought she'd hung up, but actually the call was transferred to some kind of device, and Olivia Newsy could still hear every word that was said. Um, who's down at the office, Mrs. Oz said. She's down at the office, Dr. Oz said. Your father called, said there's a reporter from the New Yorker, actually New York Magazine, waiting for me down there who said she had an appointment. We had an appointment to meet today. You think she made it up, Mrs. Oz said? I think she made it up completely, Dr. Oz said. You know what it's like. It's, it's called lying. It's called being a liar. And Mrs. Oz says, this effing girl reporter. Newsy went on to say that she heard the Oz's, the Oz couple, complaining about Michelle Bouchard, a family friend who had spoken to Elizabeth Newsy for this magazine piece, despite the fact that Mrs. Oz was telling her acquaintance, don't effing talk to her because she's working on a hit piece. And Dr. Oz said, you know, she said things she shouldn't have effing said. She shouldn't have effing said. And Mrs. Oz says, no, she didn't say. And Dr. Oz interrupts Mr. Oz. She said, S, she shouldn't have said, that I was going to be the next leader of the Republican Party. No, she didn't say that, Mrs. Oz said. You were the one who told me that, Dr. Oz. Anyway, it's just like they're bickering. It's going on and on, a lot of F words, some S words. And meanwhile, the reporter's hearing all of this. So there's a life lesson here. If you're in public life, or even if you're not, and you're going to hang up on somebody because you do not want to talk to that person, I suggest you make sure you get a dial tone. Make sure the blanking phone is off the blanking hook, or you, especially if you're running for the Senate, could be very embarrassed. And the reporter, you could just imagine, this reporter sitting there like scribbling it all down. Oh, they tried to hang up on me. Well, this is pretty interesting. I mean, it's not her fault. She didn't, uh, wasn't, uh, you know, didn't wiretap the phone. She just called. She identified herself as a reporter. And they didn't quite end the call in quite the manner they had hoped. So I actually have a few other things, but uh, that's plenty for my first time back. Um, very happy to be back. Again, hope you had a great Christmas break, whether you celebrated the holiday, hope you got the presents you wanted, or whether you just uh, had some time off. We'll be here all week. We'll be back live uh, next Sunday on Media Buzz. That's the day after New Year's, so I have to make sure I'm fully awake and not, uh, what's the technical term, hungover. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow with more Buzz Media. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.